Well, if you would, if you have your uh, Bibles or one of the Bibles in front of you or on your phone, uh, however you're uh, using it, please uh, turn with me to uh, Philippians once again, and we will pick up where we left off, Philippians chapter 1. We're uh, continuing our series now in, in the book of Philippians, the letter from Paul to his beloved dear uh, church uh, congregation that he planted there in the city of Philippi. And as we uh, pick up, we will continue reading his, his introductory thanksgiving and prayer that he has for the Philippians. So let me read now from uh, Philippians chapter 1. I'll be beginning in uh, verse 3, uh, but we'll spend most of our time in verses 7 and following. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I know and I hold you rather in my heart for you Uh, are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you again for another uh, Lord's Day where we can come and gather to worship you. Uh, We thank you for your word. Thank you for the apostles and the Apostle Paul uh, for his ministry. And not only did he do the work of ministry, but by your spirit inspiring him to uh, record and write these letters uh, of holy uh, scripture that we can benefit from his teaching as well. So please uh, be with us now, and by that same Spirit, work in us to receive your word as it is preached. Uh, May we do it all for your glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, pastoral ministry uh, is an interesting job, uh, to say the least. I remember when Jess and I first started dating, I think it was our our third date, and and I just brought up the subject to her, just just so you know, this is what I'm doing, (laughs) this is where I'm going if you're interested in that, it's a it's an interesting kind of job and it's it's full of ups and downs. And uh, this morning was was one of those ups. It's a, a, what a wonderful thing uh, to be able to administer the sacrament of baptism. What an incredible blessing that is. Uh, but there's there's downs as well. And I'm a, a younger pastor. I'm relatively new to this. And so I haven't had as much experience in, in those moments as, as many have, uh, though I have had uh, some of those experience, uh, both of them. Uh, but what is helpful for me as I am I'm more uh, beginning uh, uh, this ministry, what is helpful is to be reading and learning from others uh, who have gone before, from other seasoned pastors. And a few years ago, I, I read a book about pastoral ministry and about pastoral care. And as I was reading and preparing uh, this sermon and reading and thinking about Paul's uh, pastoral love and care and prayer for his people, I was, I was reminded of that book and I, I took it back off the shelf uh, and looked through it. Uh, this book was written by Pastor uh, Harold uh, Sankbile, and he was a pastor writing uh, for pastors, and especially writing to help those in pastoral ministry when things get hard. 
And what really struck me about that book and the lesson that stayed with me after reading it was the lesson that being precedes doing. And I've, I've mentioned that before from the pulpit here, that being precedes doing. Before the pastor can do any work of ministry, he has to be first firmly rooted in who he is. And before he can minister to Jesus' people, he has to first be ministered to himself from Jesus and by Jesus himself. That was the big lesson of the book. And so uh, Senkbile writes, uh, writing to pastors, he says, you need to realize that you've got nothing to give to others what you yourself did not receive. Jesus loves you first, then you love him back by loving his sheep and lambs in his name and in his stead. I love that. And that was true of the Apostle Paul. He loved this dear church in Philippi. He, he loved these people. That is so clear. But he loved them first and foremost because Christ loved them. And Christ loved him. And that was the strength and the grace and the power out of which Paul was able to minister to these people, to his church. The pastor doesn't love his people out of his own affections. It's kind of an interesting way to think about it. It's not out of my own affections. It's not out of the pastor's own affections, but he loves them from from Christ's affections. It is Christ's love first and foremost. And the good news is that that love never runs dry. And that's the beautiful truth that we see here in our passage this morning. So we're looking at verses 7 through 11, and there's a lot here. And and these verses, they connect back uh, to verses 3 through 6. This is one long introduction uh, to Paul's letter. Uh, And as such, we see that Paul is, is expounding upon things he's already said. The Philippians, he says, has partnered with them in the gospel uh, in verse 5. And then uh, he'll say as well in verse 7 that they are all partakers of Paul and with Paul of grace. You see, they're, they're joined together. They have fellowship together. Paul, even in his imprisonment, uh, the Philippians understood that they belonged to Paul. And they were both partakers and both had the fellowship. That's the, the koinonia word that we, we mentioned last week. And because of this, because of their partnership, because of their connection, because of their fellowship, Paul uh, has deep affections for them. Paul longs for them. He even invokes God and he says, God can witness to the fact and he can testify to how much I long to be with you, how much I love you, how much I care for you. And it's in that context he writes that he has the affections of Christ. These are are deep-seated emotions. And that word affections, it it refers to, it can refer to the gut, uh, to the internal organs. These are are gut-wrenching emotions that Paul has for his people. But notice, first and foremost, there are Christ's affections for the Philippians. It is the affection of Christ. Paul writes, and so Paul, as the under-shepherd, he feels for his people only because that's the way Jesus, as the good shepherd, feels for them. And that was the lesson of the book for pastors. That was uh, what was true of Paul and his ministry. He loved the people because they ultimately weren't his people, but they belonged to Jesus, and Jesus had great affection for them. And this gut-wrenching feeling for his people through Christ is what drove Paul to prayer. 
And he says in verse 9, this is my prayer. And this is where we're going to focus our time this morning on on Paul's pastoral prayer here that begins in verse 9. What was Paul's prayer for the Philippians? His prayer is that they would experience the same kind of love and affection that he had through Jesus Christ. It's the same thing that Pastor Senkbile was writing about in his book, that every pastor would first and foremost rest in the love of Jesus toward them before they seek to minister that love to others. And this prayer that Paul prays as it's inspired by the Spirit is a prayer for us as well and for you. That this reality would be yours, that you would also rest in Christ's love. And so we can say it another way. The main essence of this prayer, Paul's praying, is to be before you do. Being precedes doing. We must be something before we can do anything. Paul's already anticipating his main point. We've mentioned this, his main point of the, of the letter, verse 27, to, let your, uh, uh, to, uh, to live your lives worthy of the gospel. Well, how can the Philippians do that? How can we do that? First, we have to be. That is the essence of Paul's prayer for the Philippians. That they would be who they are. That they would be before they do. And we're going to consider this prayer now. We'll we'll consider it in three different parts. Following the outline of the text itself. Very helpfully outlines our sermon for us. First, Paul prays for, for the what. It's, it's the what of Paul's prayer. Then the why of his prayer. And finally, thirdly, the how. How does Paul think all this is going to happen? So let's consider those, those three things. The first thing is, is the what. What does Paul pray for? What is he praying for for the Philippians? He prays in verse 9. Says, this is my prayer. That the Philippians would abound more and more in love, first of all, and that this love would be accompanied by knowledge and discernment. Love, knowledge, and discernment. That's an interesting combination. Let's, let's consider that. Before we skip right over love, let's pause there for a moment, too. What, what kind of love is this? Well, this is, this is agape love. This is the self-sacrificial love. This is the love that counts others more significant than oneself. This is what Paul will be getting at throughout his letter. And he'll say just that to them. But most importantly, this is not just the love we have with one another, but this is the love of God himself. This is the love with which God loves you. 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction, the atonement for our sins. That's the sacrifice of God's love, sending his son to us. That is what love is. And the consequence of this love is straightforward. John says in the next verse, he says, beloved, which is is the agape word again. Those who are agape, the agape ones, agape toss. You are beloved. You are loved by God. And so he writes, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. 
That is what Paul prays for in the first place. He prays that this kind of love would abound in them, that they would love one another, that it would overflow in their hearts and in their lives. Not that they didn't already have love, not that they weren't already loving one another, but that it would abound more and more. Well, that's a wonderful prayer. Who, who could be against that kind of prayer? But Paul, he keeps going. That's not all that Paul prays for. He prays that this love would come with something. He prays that this love would abound with knowledge and with discernment. And so the next question is obvious. Well, knowledge about what? Discernment about what? Is it basic school knowledge? Is it the ability to do uh, your uh, multiplication tables? Is it knowledge about biology? Is it, is it discernment about figuring out what, what restaurant to eat at? These are silly examples. Of, of course, that's not the case. What kind of knowledge and discernment is Paul talking about? The answer is found in the next verse, in verse 10. He says that this love should abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent. Perhaps a better way to say this is to say that Paul wants them to have all this love, knowledge, and discernment that leads to, or that results in, approving what is excellent. Knowledge and discernment that brings them to the point where they can recognize the things that really matter. They can realize the important things in life. That is what Paul means by, by approving what is excellent. That's, and that's the goal for this, uh, this uh, uh, discernment and knowledge that accompanies love. The word approve uh, means to test or examine, and it's, it's uh, usually used in reference to things belonging to God. So Paul will, will write to the Romans, and he says that they must not be conformed to the world, but rather transformed by the renewal of the mind, so that... Testing, they may discern what is the will of God. That is, they might understand the will of God and approve that and test that and understand it and apply it to their lives. Paul also writes to the Thessalonians and he says that God himself has tested them and approved them for the work of gospel ministry. Because God tests the heart and because God tests the heart, they can know that they're ministering out of good motives. And so likewise, as is true of Paul and his ministry team, he wants the Philippians to be able to test and examine and approve what is excellent, what is superior, what is greater, what are the things that really matter, the important things of life, that that they would know which of the hills are worth dying on, so to speak. And that's what we all need, do we not? That is what must accompany our love. Our love must be accompanied, must always go along with knowledge of God and discernment that leads to a proper evaluation of the things of God. And I want to say that again, the the what of Paul's prayer, the thing that he is praying for, is that the Philippians would abound not just in love, but love that is always accompanied with the knowledge of God and discernment that leads to a proper evaluation of the things of God. Pastor David Strain, he, he puts it this way. He, he writes, So then, if love is the overflow of the affections of the heart, 
Paul is teaching us that those affections are inflamed and informed by knowledge of the truth, and they are guided and directed by discerning practical wisdom for life. And so so there it is. There is no such thing in the Bible as any kind of blind or reckless love. Our love is always informed by knowledge of the truth and applied through practical wisdom in our lives. Truth is defined by Scripture and discernment is achieved through applying the objective truths of Scripture in our everyday life. In a culture that has redefined love along postmodern lines of of self-identity and self-fulfillment, we must be willing to stand firm and say that love is not love unless it conforms to the knowledge of God revealed in Scripture. And that love is not love unless it is worked out in discernment in accordance with Scripture in our lives. See, that is a hill to die on. And that's the what of Paul's prayer. That's a sermon in and of itself, but we still have two more points, so we need to keep going. That's the what of Paul's prayer. Paul, out of a deep, gut-wrenching affection for the Philippians, prays for them that they would abound in this kind of love with knowledge and all discernment. That's his prayer. But why? Why is he praying for that for the Philippians? We see that next. The next thing. I love that Paul includes a why statement that's so helpful for us. Why does any of this matter? Why is he praying for this? It is because of Christ. It is because we belong to him. And it is because he's coming again. So notice the the logical connection here in the text. Paul prays that they would abound more and more in love, knowledge, and discernment. uh, A kind of discernment that leads to approving what is excellent. So what? So that, that's our purpose statement. Answers the question why. So that they would be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. The message of Christianity is that there is a day coming. And that there is something beyond this life. Something more to this life than just the here and now. For the unbeliever in Philippi, this would not have been startling news. It would not have been any breaking news for this uh, pagan society that there was an afterlife, that there was something beyond the here and now. The startling news, the scandal of Christianity, would be the fact that this afterlife, this day to come, belongs to Jesus and to him alone. That's the scandal of Christianity in the first century. Is that Jesus was the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he is the anointed one of God, that he is the Lord. And not Caesar. That he is the true God and not any of the lesser gods that are worshipped in the city. And that the last day, the end of time, belongs to him and to him alone. And for many today, the exclusivity of Christ is still a hurdle. It's, It's still a burden. You're telling me that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Well, yes. I am saying that because that's what the scripture says. 
says that this day belongs to Christ. This final day, the end day, the final day in history belongs to him. For others, though, the the scandal is not that this day belongs to Christ, but that this day exists at all. For many, there's, there's nothing after this life. For many, death is just the doorway through which you enter into the endless void of, of nothing. That it's meaningless, that there's nothing after this life. But for the Christian, we know that this day is coming. Scripture is filled with the language of the day of the Lord. If you remember in our series going through the minor prophets, that was one of the main themes in, in, in all those prophets, that there was a day coming. It was the day of the Lord. And it follows that if this day belongs to Jesus, then he gets to set the rules. And what's fascinating about this, this message is that it's the same message all across Scripture. It shouldn't be surprising to us. Because our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But as we, as we consider the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New, how they're, they're one and the same, we see how this day that's coming and the requirements of that day are the same. Simply put, we are to be holy as God is holy. That's what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12. He says, strive after holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's a powerful statement. And it's the same thing that David says in Psalm 24. He he asks the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? That is to ask the question, who can be in the presence of the holy, holy, holy God? And David says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's the one. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Do you see how the requirements on this day, how they have not changed? What is required of us on the day of Christ is that we would be holy. Because without that holiness, we will not see the Lord. We will not see Christ. And so do you see the dilemma that that puts us in? Do you see the tension there? That we're called to be holy as God is holy. That without holiness, we do not have a seat at God's table. That without clean hands and a pure heart, we will not be in the presence of the Lord. And that is why Paul so earnestly, out of his gut-wrenching affections for his people, for his dear church, he knows what they need more than anything else. He knows what they need more than any kind of financial stability more than any kind of security from uh, the people in the city and hostile neighbors, more than any other earthly comfort. What they need is holiness. And so he prays that they would be pure and blameless. And that must be our prayer as well for ourselves, for our children, for our church, that we would be and continue to become more and more pure and blameless for this day that's coming. Because that day is coming, that day belongs to Christ, and on that day, those uh, and only those who are pure and blameless will belong to Him. But this would not be good news if we just left it there. For who of us can achieve this kind of purity? Who of us can trust in ourselves to be pure and blameless? On that day. 
No, that would be bad news. That would leave us in despair. But see how Paul prays for his people. See how he prays for them. He prays not that they would work to achieve this purity on their own. Not that they would accomplish this holiness and be blameless out of their own doing. But the verb Paul prays for them is to be. How are they to prepare for this day that is coming? It's not by doing, but it's by being. And that leads us to the last part of Paul's prayer. And this is the the essence of our sermon this morning. The one takeaway is, is the how. We've seen the what, we've seen the why. How does Paul see all this happening? Paul prays that they would be pure and blameless. And in verse 11, he, he instructs them. He tells them how this is going to be accomplished. Paul prays that they will be pure and blameless by being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Filled is a passive participle. It's a passive verb and it's modifying the verb to be. How are the Philippians to be? How are they going to accomplish this state of being? It's not by doing anything active in themselves, but it's passively by being filled. Ultimately, this being filled is a passive reality on our part. Does that mean that there's nothing for us to do? Does that mean it doesn't matter what we do in this life? Certainly not. That's not what that means. And there will be plenty of opportunities. And there are many places throughout this letter where Paul speaks of the relationship between our being and our doing. And we'll, we'll see those throughout this letter. But what we must stress today, this morning, is the main point in this text. That our being filled is passive on our end. And Christ is the one who acts. We are being filled with the fruit of righteousness, righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one working. He is the one doing. And we are being. And that is the beauty of the gospel. The requirements of God's law are perfect, but we are not. And we know that we need a savior. And so when David was writing Psalm 24 and writing about the one who is pure and blameless, the one who could ascend the hill of the Lord, he was writing about Jesus. When Paul writes that the Philippians must be pure and blameless on the day of Christ, he can write that without any fear, without any anxiety for them, because it is Christ who is working in them, filling them with the fruit of Christ's own righteousness that's imputed to them. It's the exact same thing we saw Paul write earlier when he says that he's sure of this reality, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. When? He says it again at the day of Jesus Christ. There's something else we can highlight about this word, too, this word for being filled. It's, a, it's passive action on our part. We could call it a divine passive because it's, it's the divine, it's, it's God who is doing the work of this verb, of the filling. But we also see that it's in the perfect tense. Now, I won't go down a, a large, uh, long grammatical uh, uh, lesson with you this morning. I'll spare you of that. But what does it mean that this verb is in the, in the, in the perfect tense? Simply put, it means that this action of being filled 
has been completed. It is something that has been done. And having been done, it has continuous and ongoing effects and realities in the life of God's people. We have been filled. And this is through Jesus Christ. It comes from him. And he is the one who is continuing to work that new reality in each and every one of us. To bring us to that state of being pure and blameless before him on that day when he returns. It all comes from him. And that is a very comforting thought. That the one who is coming on that great and mighty day is the same one at work in you to prepare you for that day. What an incredible God that we serve. And that's why Paul can finish his prayer with these words. He says, to the glory and praise of God. Paul ends his prayer the only way that that he can. The only way that we can end our prayers By praising and glorifying his God. You know, we happily confess uh, that the chief end of mankind and our, our shorter catechism, that wonderful first question. That the purpose for which we were created is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Adam and Eve were created to do just that. But tragically, they thought that they could enjoy God and specifically enjoy his benefits and his creation without giving him the glory that's due his name. And so they trusted in themselves instead of God. And the results of the fall affect us all, as it's said. And so we're all lost. We're all searching for redemption in our lives, whether we acknowledge it, whether we notice it or not. We're all searching for this kind of rest, this kind of peace, this kind of joy, uh, this, this purpose in our lives. Reconciliation with God because we belong to him. So it reminds me of that wonderful uh, quote from, from Augustine. Where he says, because you have made us for yourself... And our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Outside of the words of Holy Scripture, perhaps there's not a better sentence that has ever been written. Because it gets to the very, the very matter of things. It gets to and summarizes the, the greatest need of every person who has ever lived. And so Pastor Senkbile, he wrote his book to pastors that they would remember and find this kind of rest again. And Paul, he knew that rest and, and, and he was praying to his beloved church that they would also know the deep affections of Christ and to rest in him. And what we need to do today, Christ the King, is to remember our greatest need as well. We need to remember that being precedes doing. We need Christ. We need to be filled by him. We need the holiness that only he can and has accomplished on our behalf. We need to rest in him. Let's pray for that now. And let's pray how our text has taught us to pray. Please pray with me. Gracious Lord Jesus, may you cause in us to abound more and more that same love with which you have first loved us. May this love be always accompanied by true knowledge and all discernment 
so that we may approve what is excellent. And may we be pure and blameless on that great and awesome day when you return. Thank you for filling us with the fruit of righteousness that comes from you and you alone. May you receive all the glory and praise now and forever. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.